0: This is the sixth episode of an occasional podcast series in the afterlife of my documentary about Samuel Barber. These Capricorn conversations are with composers and musicians whose orbits have intersected with that famous gathering place called Capricorn, where Barber and Minotti also lived. I'm Paul Moon, and today's conversation is with conductor and composer Stephen Mercurio at my studio in the East Village of Manhattan. Stephen, thanks for sharing your thoughts and stories today.
1: Oh, it's good to be with you, Paul.
0: So I'll really enjoy hearing your thoughts about this time we're in right now. But uh, I can't resist asking about your identity as a composer to begin with, given the nature of the podcast. Um, You know, even though you're known to a biggest audience as a conductor and an arranger. So Um, I saw that you learned composition from David Del Tredici, who was the last episode, actually. And then it was Vincent Parachetti. So I, I like also to think about people like Rosario Scalaro, who taught Barbara <laughs> Menotti. <laughs> yes, and, right. And really the role of And a,
1: Nino Roto also.
0: Okay. Yeah, yeah that's all right. those
1: guys were together.
0: Yeah. So, you know, how were you shaped by these teachers?
1: Well, it was an interesting time. Uh, it's hard for people to imagine now that um, in the 70s, and that's when, you know, that's when I started to compose. I, I started with David del Tredeci at Boston University from 77 to more or less 80. And at that time, contemporary music was categorically either 12-tone or some version of serial music or maybe George Crumb, which was this dramatic sort of proportional notation universe. Now, there are great pieces written in that style. I have nothing against that. Big Schoenberg fan. I love George Crumb's pieces. But if that's not where your imagination wants to go, and let's face it, composition is about what strikes your imagination. What is it that when you stare in front of a piece of paper or you're in the shower, what comes to your mind? What is the story you want to tell? And, um, I became aware of David Del Tredici's music when he, in 76, for the Bicentennial Commission, had written for the Chicago Symphony, Final Alice. And David's music hit me over the head like a brick because he took basically tonal underpinnings, but then would run it through the ringer in every possible distortion. And it was so joyous and playful. Not all contemporary music had to feel like death is hovering above you or is tragic. There was a this propensity in, in contemporary um, music that um, seriousness also had to do with ugliness or, or something like that. And to me, it just came out as being severe. Not serious, but the music sounded severe. And I remember talking with Bernstein, uh, you know, like everybody else in the world, and uh, he was at Tanglewood, and he was sitting around, and he was talking to young composers, and he said... You're so young. Why? Why is your music sounding? You know, writing about the Holocaust or writing about this or that. The other thing. not isn't, isn't anyone having fun? Doesn't have anyone anyone have something else to express besides this dire nature of the universe? And that's not my personality by nature. I'm hit, I'm hit more with melancholy or or things like that, but not that uh, life is tough and then you die syndrome that was in contemporary music, where, again, ugly was synonymous with being serious. So David's music seemed like a wonderful direction to follow. So I went and I followed him right to Boston University and did that. And I could say I probably wasn't one of his better students because David is a virtuoso pianist. You know, he can play anything and I'm not. I, I follow a bit more of the Berlioz, frame of reference, which was, you know, I was a rock and roll guitar player before that uh, with interests in jazz and a lot of other things, but I was attracted to how classical music was just sort of built on more levels. It was sort of built to last. It wasn't the McDonald's of, of the world. You know, I love pop music, but it's built to satisfy the immediate uh, sugar need. You know what I mean? It's, it's like, it feels good at the time. And it can last, but I I was interested in in things that were composed, I can't say better, but composed on more levels and had other stories to tell. Uh, Besides, um, you know, I want to have a good time that night or or, or the immediate anger of the moment. But I love David's music and I went in that direction, studied with him, um, and then went to Juilliard for my master's. There it became very interesting because... David's music was, although David was accepted because he had won the Pulitzer Prize in 1980 for (laughs) a memory of a summer's day, he was still considered an outsider in in a very strange way because his music was really loved. Audiences were going crazy over that thing, Mm -hmm. which is very similar to the plight that Sam Barber and Minotti and even Bernstein and and Aaron Copland had to that was the cross that they had to bear. I remember that Minotti had a funny cartoon that was in in Yester House with a picture, and I wish I could. I, I should have you know, we didn't have cell phones at that time. But is this little people marching, and they have a banner of Minotti and Barber, and then all these other guys, these contemporary people that nobody's following, and yeah, but everybody's cheering for the the people following. Minotti and Barber, because they had success. Minotti had great ses- success with Amal, the medium, the san obliquistry, the consul, and Barber, obviously, with a variety of pieces. Imagine you know the the adagio and, and everything else. so they were they were um, their school was following sort of not neo-Romanticism. It was sort of a neoclassicism that was on the heels of romanticism, but neoclassic. Minotti definitely considered himself more somebody that was schooled in, whether it was Renaissance music or classical music, but they were old enough to actually have lived in the Romantic period, so they weren't extending that. They were twisting it in their own modern direction. Mm -hmm. So a piece like the Capricorn Concerto, right, appropriate to discuss that, is definitely a neoclassic piece. The Mm -hmm. way Stravinsky was in his own distorted language, but in an American language... The Capricorn Concerto came out basically being a Brandenburg concerto that was seen through the eyes of a 20th century American composer, mm-hmm. which I've also had the pleasure of conducting in Spoleto at the festival when I was music director there. It was one of the first things I did on the Noontime series. And I told uh, Minotti, I said, I want to do Sam's piece. I want to do the Capricorn Concerto. Big smile came over his face
0: because... It was their home. And it's an interesting piece because it is a piece that uh, sounds modernistic to a lot of ears. I think it took me a while, in other words, to to get into that piece. And yet, you're right. The more I heard about it, the more I talked to people like you, I found out that it's very, I don't know if Bachian is a word. It's but a it's, Brandenburg
1: concerto seen through the eyes of Sam Barber in the 21st century. Yeah. Uh, but I'll take a trumpet and I'll take a violin, I'll take a flute, whatever it is, and, and then have this sort of concerto grosso feeling around it. And that's that's what it does and you can do it with a chamber orchestra you can do it. it it's meant to to feel that intimate and to be that direct
0: so it's in the lore though that um Scolero and barber in particular were like sparring partners in a sense because Scalero <laughs> was always trying to tug barber sort of back into the 19th century barber was always testing the boundaries sure. and at the same time he was writing music that was vilified for being too old-fashioned you know how did you deal with that juilliard in comparison to your prior um, education was it especially sort of in that serial academic oh you betcha! Pr- protectionist world
1: absolutely and again I have a lot of respect for these composers but we had Elliot Carter Roger Sessions Milton Babbitt um, and who else was there and then my teacher was Persichetti and there was one other David Diamond now they were they were, they were all very strong personalities. And I chose Persicati not because he was the head of the composition department, but he was the most kind of them all, the least doctrinaire. Mm-hmm. He, he was a, a gentle person, but also, as long as I was on fire, as long as I was writing, as long as I came in every week with something to discuss, he was just, that's great. Yeah, and he, he would say to me something like, oh, I see what you're doing there. Maybe you, can, maybe you should listen or look at something there. Or, yes, I like where you're going. I think this part is working well. He never passed judgment on the stylistic intent. Whereas the other guys, it was clear that their students were following in the footsteps of their teachers. It was a very, very, very clear thing. I wasn't writing Pristichetti music. I was writing Mercurio music, which was still heavily Del Tredici-oriented but it had my own peculiar quirks to it also, coming from the world that I came from, rock and jazz world. But I also loved Mahler and Strauss. So
0: I wanted to ask you about that because I saw you mention I saw mention of Salome, and I'm kind of obsessed with that opera. <laughs> so I won't mind at all if we can geek out for a couple of oh, minutes on Salome. Because the story is, and I'd love to hear you say it, but huh? you you were challenged to <laughs> deal with the score. And then but, to their surprise, what?
1: Well, there was a wonderful professor, Doctor. Well, he was Joseph Maklis, who wrote The Enjoyment of Music, and he also wrote another book, I think, for Norton, uh, 20th Century Opera. And one of the requirements we had to have as master's students at Juilliard is we had to take one of those electives. So I took 20th Century Opera. Great. And Maklis was a great guy. And then he, he, I think we started with Pelleas and Melisande*, and it's fine. And he would hand out piano vocals, and then we would listen to segments of the opera and then discuss it. But his big thing was connecting it to the other arts, so he had a great viewpoint. If you if he's uh, discussing Palais Malizane, you would you would look at art of the impressionist art, and then you would see what other authors were were doing. You he gave it context. That was his thing. He never claimed to be a great musician, but he wanted people to understand music in the twentieth century as it relates to other art forms as well. So that was great. Well, I think the second or third opera that we came by was *Salome*. Now. Salome is a piece, as a as, to remember, in this class, we weren't all composers. There were singers, there were violinists, there were a lot of, there was a violist there. there were a lot. But as a composer and as a conductor, he said, oh, Salome. And he was, Joseph Mackles had this great voice, dear boy, uh, don't you want a piano vocal? I said, I said, I, I, I've, I just saw six or seven performances at the Met. I've been living with the orchestra score as a composer. I said, I, I kind of know Salome. And he said, okay, okay. He said, you sure you don't want a piano vocal score? I said, no. So then he puts it on him. So I proceeded to sort of conduct along as, as we do. And anyway, we get to the dance of the seven veils. Oh, who the hell would know that? Or the final scene. Okay. Final scene. I had, I had that memorized. I basically had more or less the whole opera memorized. And it was over. He said, He just, he asked me to stay after class and he said, I guess you really did know Salome. And we became incredibly good friends, incredibly good friends to the point where, um, because we just had, we just love to spar back and forth about things because when he's representing a certain aspect, dealing with the social parts of these things, then I would immediately get in there and say, yes, but listen to this harmony. When he goes, da dun, dum, bim bum, bum, am, dee, da dum. I said, that is the most filthy chord. And I go over to the piano and play that thing and say, this is what we need to discuss also. Yeah. Because for somebody who had written X amount of operas before, and then, you know, between Electra and Salome, you've got to show that really the seeds of 12-tone music are in that. But Strauss had realized he had gone as far as he can go. And when your next opera then is Ariadne of Noxus and then Rosenkavalier, you have to give that context to Mr. Macklis. You know what I mean? Professor Macklis. So I would challenge him and I would start to rep- I would speak in front of the class about the other aspects of it, the, mu- the purely musical ones. And he just loved it.
0: Well, what is this trajectory? I mean, I find it irresistible to sort of chart it out <laughs> with composers, like what they do as their life, as their career, or as their 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 opuses evolve. Right? You get two violent, bloody, gigantic, loud, bombastic operas, and then mellowing into pretty much a lifetime of Mozartian. But it's also the psychological thing because how can you write?
1: Uh, you know, being a man who wrote symphonic tone poems, Salome was his third opera after Guntram and Faust, or whatever, and, and the other one. Um, but that was his third, and the first two didn't have success. They were sort of Wagnerian, dealing with a normal Wagnerian logic. But being somebody who wrote, loved stories and writing all those tone poems, if you're going to write Salome and Electra, somehow the language, the musical language, has to fit that perversion. And, and it was so expressionistic. So his music followed where that was going. I see. You know, clearly, clearly, you, the dysfunction of an Electra, the mental torture of an Electra, is not going to be just a half diminished chord. That's not going to suffice. You know? It had to go further. And he did. He was so much on his game in terms of, if I need that, but, then if you wanted something beautiful, boy, he can write something so incredibly beautiful. And so I think it w- it wasn't so much that it's like, I think he realized he'd taken that as far as he wanted to. And then the stories that he wanted to tell afterwards off of the stage. Again, there's no film yet. There's, you know, it's mm. no radio, no film. Mm. People went, our fixation with going to films and seeing things live, people went to the opera. And I think he felt, all right, I'd written that. I'd gotten as filthy as I wanted to go and as perverse as I wanted to go psychologically. And then he went with this comedy for Ariadne and this wonderful, wonderful period piece, you know, like like people like to go to the movies and see period pieces. And he just took his mind in that direction. Mm-hmm. And I think he found that more satisfying psychologically. I think it must've been very, very fatiguing for him to write Electra and Salome because you put yourself in that for six months, a year, two years, and you're living and you're wallowing in that same dysfunction,
0: and well, think- and people have made the parallel with librettists in regards to Hofmannsthal being like his parallel with who Mozart had, you know, that right. that that they kind of found that Mozartian yes. um, paradigm together. Basically, and- it's a collaborative. Uh, operas the one
1: that i love the most although i to this day i still can't figure out the libretto is the frau on Yes, yeah sure there's some of the most beautiful music but not only beautiful the king's music when you get yeah. i mean you get a d major that's beyond and the and before that the scene change you get this pedal dominant pedal that goes on forever and then builds on that theme it's just I mean, bi- Mind
0: boggling. And biographically, it's it's been said that he has said that that's his favorite work, that that consummated everything.
1: Because when he needed, you know, Keiko Bob music, he knew exactly, oh, I can write this crazy bird music, but then I can write this beautiful music and I can, for the bower, I can get into my dissonance a little bit, but then all of a sudden write this beautiful duet. I think with that opera, he was able to combine all of his... Um, bag of tricks. You know, in other mm-hmm. words, every, his palette was so wide by then yes. after, after um, Salome Electra, but then also after Ariadne and Rosenkavalier. When it came to doing that, he just had this wide palette and he could just fling it in any direction and say, I want this music. There it is. I want that music. So yeah, I, I, as a composer, and again, when you talk about a Juilliard, I had seen every performance that the Met did of Die Frau Schatten. So it was natural when I was at Juilliard that I was going to try and orchestrate or write something with Salome, Electra, Die Frau and Schatten in my mind, in my orchestral palette. And I did. I wrote this serenade for Teren and Orchestra that was 25 minutes long. Yeah, you
0: didn't start, you didn't start small. <laughs> no, I
1: wrote that thing and I didn't start small. And it had some Del Tredici in it, but then it went my own distorted way. And I love that piece to this day but I know where the influences came from. But they it, it came from real life apprenticeship thing, not a um, theoretical one that, okay, this is, you know, I'm gonna use my row this way and then I'm gonna invert it and then I'm gonna do this. Those guys had no orchestration skills whatsoever. Virtually all the pieces that the student composers did because it was theoretical and they didn't spend enough time at the Philharmonic. They didn't spend enough time at the Met you know, I, I saw all the Tristons at that time too. And when you sit there and you experience the Libestod or the Liebes Nacht or the Prelude, it affects what you write. Not that you want to use that language, but the reality of how orchestras function mm-hmm. and what what you what is a real, realistic expectation of what you put on paper and what you're going to get back from the orchestra. You don't just think that if you are a 12-tone no, that a, that a piccolo and a flute are going to be the same as a brass section. You know what I mean? I, I mean, there's just stuff that I heard that I you go, know, gee whiz. Whereas might be that tenor, funny story since we have time to do this, is that Serenade for Tenor and Orchestra that I wrote. Because everybody at Juilliard was allowed a session with one hour with the orchestra.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And usually guys would bring in, or gals would bring in their piece and they would write something that last five or 10 minutes long, and they would use one of the Juilliard conductors Mm -hmm. and they would rehearse it for 20, 25 minutes, half an hour, and then they would um, then record it. They were allowed to record it and they would record the same thing two or three times and then they can edit it. I said, oh, wow, I can have the orchestra for an hour and I'm going to conduct it myself. They said, you sure? You know, we have the the conducting department. No, I want to conduct it myself. So I wrote this piece that was 27 minutes long for tenor and orchestra and it had all these crazy variations of this very, very tonal theme that was del Treci inspired. And I would run it through the ringer the way he would. You know, you take out beats, you add beats, you transpose, so fanciful about this. Seren- usually serenades happen before relationships start. This was my version of 21st century or 20th century was after it had ended. And he was trying to remember what the hell went wrong. <laughs> and it was a very funny text that I co-wrote with one of the juilliard actors i said i want a text that's going to do this and we did it and the guy's sort of drunk or high and he's thinking how the hell i get myself so he runs through a a variety of things where he remembers the good stuff but he also remembers the bad stuff and ultimately he's left at the end saying well i know it's going to happen again (laughs) you know i was like i'm doomed to go from one relationship to the other but i'm living my life and i'm going to move forward and i'm i probably happen again yeah so it was sort of interesting so I, I wrote this and and you have when you do this sort of jury thing the I get my hour but I'm you know you look in the end end of the room and there's a table set up and there's Milton Babbitt and there's Roger sessions and there's Elliot Carter and there's David Diamond and Peretti all the teachers are there
0: what's the look on their faces
1: well you know mine was the third of the three pieces so okay the first hour you know, they do that second hour somebody does this and I get mine up there and it, since I all I can do is basically read it one time, make a few little corrections, being 26, 27 minutes, and then just let it rip again. So I, I did it and it read down surprisingly well. I made a few little things. So there was one funny time change that happens where something equals something. I explained that and we went through it again. And I got a tenor that was from the voice department. Oh, excuse me, that's my, that's my, that's my cell phone. Tarzan is is letting us go. No, okay, that's off. So I read it and did it. And, and this tenor comes from the voice department and that was terrific. And he sounded like Placido Domingo. He was terrific. And, and he did, and it caused a furor at Juilliard because it followed that Del Tredici thing. And, and they kind of looked at me, David Diamond was like, Every, everybody fell into two categories. They were the ones that say, well, is this really contemporary music? Is it really kind of music? And I just say, well, listen, I just saw the on a shot, and I saw a this. I'm going to see if I can orchestrate in that. If I'm at a, at a university getting my master's, this is my place where I can see: Can I orchestrate? Do I have? Is what I'm hearing in my head really coming out? And and musically, in terms of my tonal language, this is what it, this is what makes me laugh. This is what makes me cry. This is what moves me. So I'm not going to write it to. If I can't do it in school and write what I want and then progress and then move on, this is the place to do it. And I was convinced And I did that. Percy Kennedy was really kind. He was, he was actually sort of thrilled because I let it rip and I did it. But then I would get David Diamond saying, well, you should write a fugue. You should do this. You should. He's trying to tell me all this garbage I have to do. The students were interesting. Most of them were very dismissive. But a couple of them behind the scenes would come to me, not in that room. But days later, it would come and say, can I see that score? How did you orchestrate that thing? That part sounded really, really, really good. Now, they would never orchestrate music that sounded like that, but they knew, they knew to a person that I could orchestrate. And it sounded terrific, even though I was just reading through. So the rest of my time at Juilliard, the following year, it was, <laughs> it was, the die was already cast. I was that guy. I was the guy following the the banner of David Del Tredici and then later on I met John Corigliano who was of of a similar you know
0: um, thought process well well let's escape from school because I think what happened after that was was it the Buffalo gig basically where you connected with Lucas Foss because he's a composer I really love to celebrate and it kind of struck me as a surprise because I it was one of those things where you see the name mm-hmm. and you say oh him yeah. You know, and you're like, oh, those exactly. are great pieces that nobody plays anymore. That's right. well, We've got the Renaissance Concerto for flute. Um, I grew up on that. Oh, I, I got to about that piece I grew thing. up on Song of Songs. Oh, sorry, um, I think the three pieces for violin is the most beautiful yep. chamber music ever written. That's it. So tell me about Buffalo.
1: Well, I went there, actually. One of the things that I would do, and again, I believe in being an apprentice. And even though I was no longer studying with David, every time his pieces were done, whether it was in memory of a summer day or the other thing, David would ask me if I would go and sit with the score and actually run the sound because I knew his pieces. So I became, you know, they would have a sound man who would do it, but then I would I would basically control the soprano's volume because I knew when it was going to get loud, when it was going to get quiet, and I was doing that for a variety of his pieces. Go Fast forward to Buffalo, David said, well, you want to come to Buffalo? There's this concert, and I, I forget which one they were going to do. I think they were, um, I don't know if it was A Mouse's tail or one of those. And he said, sure, I'll come. Same thing, sort of be an assistant, go do it, even though I was long past my master's. But these were my friends at this point. I'll go. By coincidence, John was on that program doing the creation piece, and and I was doing David's, and John said, Oh, would you do mine too? So you give me a score, and I'll sit back there, and I'll, you know, it was a narrator part, and I'll do that. And Lucas was conducting. So Lucas was really happy to have a composer a composer at that time, and a young conductor, to actually assist. They didn't have anyone to do that, and I was friends with these guys, so okay, I did that. So I got to meet Lucas. After that, I said, you know, I live in New York, and I know that you've got the Brooklyn Philharmonic. Uh, do you need an assistant conductor? He said, well, we, we don't have an assistant conductor. I said, would you mind if I come to rehearsals? And I just started going to all the rehearsals for months. And I would say, you know what? I had a car, do you want me to drive you? I would drive him from 95th Street, and I'd drive him out to Brooklyn. On these rides back and forth, we'd talk about the pieces and it didn't make a difference whether it was Beethoven seven or 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 Tchaikovsky five. I'd be there with the score. I'd be sitting up there and we'd talk to him on the ride back. Long story short, we'll go through this thing and he can see that I'm I'm serious. I'm serious because we're talking contemporary music. He had the meet the modern series and I would go to all of those and eventually he'd say, here, you conduct that one or do this or something needs to be conducted off stage. I would do that. The second year, they made me an assistant conductor, no salary, but I, was, I had a, a title and I was part of the organization. Third year, they actually made me a social conductor and gave me pieces to conduct. Well, Lucas said, you know, this is it. After that, then I started my career. But Lucas, in that time period, Lucas was still in Buffalo. And you mentioned the Renaissance Concerto. Lucas was writing that, Carol Winsons and all this sort of stuff. And I was orchestrating some of his pieces. He gave me a piece, uh, I Build in House, which was written just for chorus and organ. And he said, oh, I'm, I'm going to do that there. Some chorus wants me to do it, but they want to orchestrate it. He says, "Will you do that for me. And I just orchestrated it. I gave it to him. And he said, great. You know, you want to change anything? No, no, this is perfect. That was it. Nobody paid me to do that. I just wanted to assist. I wanted to be there. So he saw again. I'm I'm serious. I get it. Now he gets this commission to write the Renaissance Concerto and it's getting late. He had made a short score, which was only sometimes three staves, four staves. It wasn't orchestrated, but the orchestration was indicated. This would be strings, this would be that. And he said, would you write out the score for this? And let me see it. And then any changes. So I wrote out the score. The score for Renaissance Concerto is in my hand. Mm -hmm. That's what he conducted with. Mm -hmm. The same thing, I did the piano reduction for piano and flute that's my reduction. I'm not even a good pianist, but I made the piano reduction and the flute solo flute part to which Carol Winston and even Carol, um, uh, oh, what's it? Uh, Robinson, um, Paula Robinson, Robinson. She did it and we did it with her in, in Spileto. She likes to use my handwritten original because the typeset version has page turns that are uncomfortable or it opens up in a certain format. I, I, being a composer, made sure that everything, that the four-bar phrases look like that in one system. But when they typeset things, sometimes the music doesn't look right. And both of those people were always using my handwritten one to this this day. But yeah, being around Lucas for the Renaissance Concerto or this piece or that piece, that was also part of a natural apprenticeship. And then from, from Lucas, I got to know
0: Lenny because... Those guys were together at Curtis from the year one. And to, just to check in on Lucas Foss, I mean, what is the bird's eye view of his place in mid-century composers? He he was a
1: puck-like character. What does that mean? Is that he was so fanciful. Nobody had a quicker wit and was eternally young. He, he refused to grow up. He was a Peter Pan puck, if you can imagine, you know? he he was a natural. So everything came to him so easily. And his curiosity was always piqued by everything. So when he was young and he was writing in a Copeland-esque fashion, like you say, you know, he wrote The Prairie uh, and Song of Songs, which, by the way, Stravinsky loved. Stravinsky wrote Lucas, who told me the story, when, because when, Lucas was teaching out in L.A., he was 27 years old. He was the, the Schoenberg fellow there when Stravinsky was was out in, in does, L.A.
0: Does that piece precede the Kusevitsky Commission of Symphony of Psalms?
1: Um, I don't know what the dates they, were. Because they
0: really riff off each other.
1: It's, it's, it's just that period. Yeah. It's that period of the 40s when you got to remember that Bernstein and Foss were the first two Tanglewood fellows, 40-41, when it opened up. And they were there not just as conductors or composers, as as both, because they were both Curtis kids. So they would study conducting with Kusovitsky and whoever else was there. And then, they, but they were both Copeland's assistants. Mm-hmm. And I said to Lucas, so what were you doing with, with he said, "Ah, oh, Billy the Kid. I copied out all, okay. I I corrected all the proofs and I kept finding mistakes in the in the orchestra score. And after a while, Copeland said, enough, <laughs> enough. <laughs> Let the, the orchestra find the rest of them, but yeah. Lucas did the same thing I did for him. He did for Copeland at Tanglewood when Copeland was writing Billy the Kid. And Lucas was the guy looking for the wrong notes and looking through all the orchestra proofs.
0: Okay. You yeah. know,
1: so this, it's just wonderful that that's the way it goes. Unfortunately, I don't think that this generation, which is uh, American Idol oriented, they just want to become famous. They want to be given the job, and very few people have paid their dues. They don't want to apprentice. They just want to be given it.
0: Okay. Well, a lot of composers climax with uh, the greatest of all mediums. So, I mean, talking to Stephen Mercurio, I mean, we have to eventually get to opera, okay? And <laughs> and then you know that the interesting point in your life because next up, from what I can get, could see was Opera Company of Philadelphia. Yes. But if, pausing on that, like back to Lucas Foss, though. Here we have an example of a composer not known for operas. Yes. And then there's also lots of kind of uh, I don't know. There's lots of there's lots of great sound bites from composers over the years about how much of a just drain writing an opera is i mean i've heard john adams in in a talk at the library of congress one time it was at the time when he had finished dr atomic and with a sort of an air of exhaustion i'm never writing another opera ever again because
1: it's a collaborative effort you you you're not in charge you you give birth to that First of all, you have working with a librettist.
0: So we're here at Opera Company, Philadelphia. Yes. So what's your gig? And actually, how collaborative was it for you?
1: Well, it's a good story. I started, when I was at the Met as, I I had a very, very fortunate period, right after the Lucas Foss period, 1987 to 1991. I was at the Met as Levine's assistant. And yes, that was tragic to a certain extent, as you can imagine. Leave it at that. As a conductor, at the same time I was assistant composer in residence with the New York Philharmonic, because David Del had become composer in residence, and he dragged me along. He said, "You're going to be my assistant there." You're going, you know, which the assistant's job was basically to look at all the scores that the publishers would give, and then if Frank Milburn, who was the program director, and and, and Zubin Mehta would say, "Okay, we're looking for a piece by this kind of a," you know, and you he would help uh, slot in all the contemporary works. In the season, you would help make suggestions. Um, so that was my my job. David's job was to write pieces, that was to and to be the, the front person, you know, to, to be the the face of contemporary music. And I would do the grunge work, which is just look at all the submissions, whether they were private or from publishers, and make recommendations in these meetings. But in that period, in '87, when I was working at the Met, I met some people who were working um, at the Opera Company of Philadelphia. When the Pavarotti competition was there. Pavarotti was at the Met all the time. I got to know him, this, that, and the other thing. And they asked me because they would do pieces by the winners to go there and prepare. So I would prepare all the Pavarotti competition winners. And at that time, it was just the beginning of my conducting career. So like Emerson Buckley would come in or Guadagno would come in, but I prepared two casts and do everything and then turn it over. They saw who I was, and they asked me to conduct Rusalka the following year, and I conducted Rusalka in Czech, and that went very, 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 very well. And then the following season, it was the 89-90 season, uh, Margaret Everett, who was the general director, said, I want you to do the Sainte Bleecker. I want you to do this Minolte opera. You'd be perfect. You're just like a young Tommy Shippers because you're, you're young, you're energetic, you know composers, you work with all these guys, you're at the Met, you're at the Philharmonic you'd be perfect for Menotti, rather than just having somebody that, whatever. I said, oh yeah, I know Menotti's works out. That, that would be, I'd be honored to conduct the Saint Oblique, which is his most Puccini-like. It's his most grand opera of all the Menotti operas. Menotti said, oh, I don't know who this Mercurio guy
0: is. But but you're in his turf because now the Philadelphia area is yeah, right. Curtis.
1: So he can choose. And Margaret said, trust me. She, he's So he said, give me the name of a couple of people that I know that can vouch for Mercurio. So- she said, so she asked me, I said, well, I know that John Corleano knows Menotti for a million years. His father went and, and did the John sonata in Spoleto in, 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 in 1962, 63, you know, back in those days. So Minotti called Corleano and said, yeah, in fact, Steve's working on my opera right now. He's helping me with the Ghost of Versailles. That's why he's at the Met. And he's helping me work on this piece. You'd be lucky to have him. And that was it. It was done we got along like a house on fire. Menotti just loved, because I was always asking him questions. And I said, well, you know, I noticed that in Act One, you have the banda, you know, he's got the the, the trombones and the trumpets leaving the pit, like in Carmen, and going backstage to play the, the Velia Soudinoi at the end of Act One. to I said, but, you know, since we have a, you can't do that with the unions now, you have to, the guys that are in the pit stay there, and if you want offstage guys, they got to go backstage. So we had hired backstage, I said, but now you, you're finishing Act One, and you're, your brass section, the trumpets and the trombones are just sitting there doing nothing. And he goes, you're right. He says, you want to orchestrate? You want to put that in there? I said, yeah. I said, I just did it with Carmen. I did the same thing in act four. We had the, you know, backstage. So I, I finished and I did the same thing. He goes, that would be great. And while you do that, do this, that, and the other thing. So he got excited about that. We had fun. The following year, I did the Saint Bleecker down in DC when we did that. And then he said, well, why don't you come to Spoleto and do the closing concert?" This was in Charleston. The year after, why don't you do the closing? Um, on Come to the uh, Ita- uh, Italian side. Then he asked me, and this was for his 80th birthday, which was 1991. And Giancarlo's birthday is very, very easy to remember because it's 7711. You know, <laughs> it's July 7th, 1911. And so for his 80th birthday, he wanted to revise Goya. And Goya was done six or seven years before that for the Washington Opera with Placido playing the role of Goya. And it was finished at the last possible minute. So he didn't like the way it ended. He wanted to fix the orchestration. He wanted to prepare a proper piano vocal. And so I worked a year with him. I would go to House and prepare it and did it for his 80th birthday. And two years later, he asked me to become music director there. Again, apprenticing. I didn't write any of my own music for two years because I worked on Giancarlo's music and revise the medium, the saint, the console. Same thing I was doing for Lucas and helping John Corleano. Now I'm in Minotti's camp helping him revise all of these works, but especially Goya for for that Italian thing. And
0: And so when when we talk about the Spoleto Festival, I think we can waste a lot of time giving credit or even paying attention to the people who somewhat unraveled it. So I don't want to talk a, talk in a sort of gossip frame of mind, yeah. but rather more philosophically, something kind of struck me. You, you, I think you had an insight about how, you know, up to maybe that point, or at least more so in the past, you would have people with singular artistic visions who just could realize them. Without the interference of boards of directors and sort of too many cooks in the kitchen, right? Yes. And you've given the example, which hits very close to home with Barber, where uh, you know Mary Curtis Bach right. was just one quirky wife right. of an industrialist right. who would just say, "Hey, you need that? You got it. Right. You, know? you need
1: a place up in Westchester or something? You, you and Giancarlo need a place to to work in. I the mean, summer. It, get,
0: it gets even more in the weeds. I yeah. think they needed a pool at Capricorn <laughs> once they got there. <laughs> And then there's a piece of music that was written basically, yeah. you know, to fulfill the pool money. And
1: Giancarlo told me the same thing when they wanted to go to Salzburg. Okay. When they were studying. And I forget what year that was, 36 or something like that, 37. Yeah. They wanted to go over, uh, I, I don't know all those details, but they wanted to go. And she just wrote the check Yeah. because she, they convinced her that, yes, it was part of their education to go to the Salzburg Festival to see, you know, Toscanini was conducting there, this, that, and the other thing. And she said, you're right and they went on, on her nickel.
0: So in a nutshell, what happened at Spoleto, but more importantly, is this a, was that a, a, a harbinger of the way things are now?
1: Unfortunately, yes, because once upon a time, it was either, yes, the music reigned, let's put it that way. The people with the creative vision reigned and then, the support staff was the board of directors to help fulfill that vision. Now it's become a, a sort of a perverse democracy in that it, it's the general director who's selected by the board, who's not necessarily even a musician. They're, a lot of them are foundation people. You know, they're, they're people who dealing with finances become uh, the deciding factor. Um, Uh, Same Michigan Opera Theater, when David DeKera was there, it was his vision from day one, and things now that he's gone, it's just not the same. There are too many other points of view that are being considered that are not based on artistic vision. So when Giancarlo left... Charleston, and Charleston still went and did its thing, but it's not the same. Giancarlo's vision was, I want a place where all the arts function simultaneously. I want to do opera. I want to do symphonic. I want to do chamber music. I want to do an art exhibit. I want to do a noontime concert. I want to do everything in one place. I want to give the full scope of what an artist's life entails, not just this, that, and the other thing. And so when he did the Spoleto Festival in 58 on the Italian side, it was unique. There had been, sure, you can go to you can go to Verona for opera. You can go someplace else for for symphonic music. But no one had conceived of something that was... And then you have a youth orchestra there, basically, to do that and create this whole world of young musicians that are dynamic, that are interested, that are enjoying it, and a young chorus. So not only can you give them work hours that are above and beyond whatever, you know, but it, you didn't have a union mentality. It was all like It was like a music camp that was just
0: fantastic well remind me again of what the two worlds are that are alluded to in the title
1: oh uh, the festival they do mondi yeah well that that came in when there was charleston charleston came in 10 years later or 15 years later when they wanted to have a u.s partner and so it went to charleston uh which was fantastic i, I was there for a year in 90 as music director of both sides and then 94 the charleston side uh, split because, basically because Minotti was no longer a resident in the United States. He was living full-time in either Yester House, which was in Scotland outside of Edinburgh, or his place is in Spoleto in Italy. But he no longer had a U.S. resident in New York, nor was he interested in any fundraising activities and stuff like that. So the board wanted to acquire all the power. Giancarlo wanted to put Chip, his adopted son, in as president to sort of control things. And uh, they just weren't going to buy it. Mm-hmm. So they parted ways in 94. The Italian side stayed on as long as Giancarlo was alive. Then when Giancarlo died, it then was immediately taken over by state functions, city, this, that, and the other thing, and is no longer, it's still there, but is not the groundbreaking unique place that it once was.
0: And it is the place where maybe you really cut your teeth, maybe for the first longest stretch. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, well, sure. When I was there basically as music director from 93 and 97, but from there, 90, 91 on, yeah. When you're a young conductor and you get a chance to do Votsek, Die Stadt, uh Tritiko from Puccini, um, Shostakovich, The Nose, you know, in Russian, these were the, the operas I got to. I got to the Baileus Requiem and then Piazza with the four Bondas going on and Mahler II and a pile of other symphonic stuff. Yes, as a 30-something, middle 30-something to get that opportunity. But I also enjoyed being music director. I enjoyed running around the United States to all the cities and hearing a couple of thousand kids and putting together an orchestra and giving them an identity for the summer, which was, for me one of the most important parts of the job. I really took the, the part as music director serious to create an environment by which the orchestra, to me, it was personal. When they left at the end of the summer, I wanted them to say, I want to come back next year. We had a great time. Um, so yeah, you don't, you don't become a dictator. You, you, you teach them. And again, that comes from the, the Bernstein mold of being what I call an inclusive conductor, not exclusive, mm-hmm. which means it's your living room. You treat everybody that's involved with it as if they were friends and family. That means the audience, too. It means if you're sitting outside after conducting the opera and you're talking to people who came to the opera and you'll sit there for an hour and do that. And that's part of the job. And if somebody's not feeling well, you go to their, where the old dorm that they're staying in and you talk to them and say, how can I do this? Can I get you something? Can I do that? It's not just waving your arms around.
0: Well, let's talk a little more about Menotti. <laughs> so much to say. <laughs> yeah, please. Um, I'll start with this though, asking you, I mean, it's, it, you seem, I think you've said that he really popped in the fifties, especially that, and you've talked about timing, it just, you have converging factors that made it right. So what hits me? All right. As I mean, honestly, as a new New Yorker, I'm also like aware of Broadway's crisis and the way that they're, you know, desperately hanging on. And I'm just rooting for them. Yes, you know? of course. But what hits me is that Minotti was opening operas on Broadway. Yes. So Broadway was both different. Yes. But also composers like Minotti were getting a lot of exposure. What sure. also hits me is that there were NBC operas. That's right. And NBC isn't what, it wasn't what it is today. I mean, everybody was watching Oh, Well, you had NBC. the
1: Firestone Hour where you get Jan Pierce and... and and Eleanor
0: Stieber singing. Or even the Ed Sullivan Show had Robert Merrill on it as a regular guest. So what I want, I mean, this is even before your time, but in a nutshell, was there actual engagement? Like was, 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 was he a sensation in pop culture the way that we could say some pop artists are today? Or was it some rigged system where we could overestimate how popular these were? Because again, we're talking about NBC and Broadway, right? Well,
1: he wrote the first opera written for TV. A Mile and the Night Visitors was not an opera that was then televised. It was something that was written. Now, TV was just a, a, it's a beginning, because we're talking about the the early 50s. It was still a little black and white box that somebody had, you know, or didn't have, couldn't even afford. But the idea, oh, there's a new medium and he's going to write. And it's a chamber opera because you can do it with an orchestra of as few as 13. Mm -hmm. Same thing with the medium and the console. So he was very, very aware of, the realistic aspect, but he was also writing things that a public can go to. Now, back then, we have to remember, opera was, or even the symphony, was a coveted thing. In other words, the society valued the opera and the symphony. Even up to the 80s, when Ormandy left the Philadelphia Orchestra, their subscription base was like, I think, 92%. By the time Mutti left, 11 years later, it was down to 38%. So stuff happened. Stuff happened in society. So when you talk about the 50s, you're talking about music education. It's not by coincidence that Bernstein in 58, 59, 60, 61 did the young people's concerts and they threw it on TV because the, the synergy was there. Culture was respected. My parents, my father told me he had to learn, this is the symphony that Schubert wrote but never finished. I mean, they had music education. It, does, it doesn't mean that everybody became a classical music fan, but the difference between Benny Goodman, the jazz guy, and Benny Goodman playing Mozart wasn't that far apart, mm. you know. Or Eileen Farrell singing Wagner and then singing jazz down the street was not that far apart. And same thing, Bernstein writing what he conducting Mahler one day and writing Candide didn't seem that far apart. It just wasn't a big deal, you know. Robert Merrill. Singing excerpts from Porgy and Bess and then singing Trovatore at the Met wasn't a big deal. It it you know there was a natural uh, crossover, and, and these old things that I see on on Classic Arts TV when you when you watch the old Firestone things and stuff like that, and it's like my my goodness, and even Johnny Carson to a certain extent, he had Pavarotti on all the time, yeah, yeah, and Placido and and Marilyn Horn. And and so people knew them as being iconic. So to answer your question, Minotti became known because yeah, he was just the guy who was writing stuff that people could hear and understand. And if he wrote a model and the Night Visitors, that story is very, very touching. And also wrote it in a way that every community orchestra can do it. Any musical organization can do it. And all of a sudden you find yourself that, you know, he's got 150 performances every Christmas. I mean, different organizations and the guy's writing the twelve tone stuff that nobody wanted to hear. There's
0: a jealousy. But but, but you make an interesting point that it was purpose built for television. So it's almost like a, there was a new art form being invented at the time, and there was a vitality to that. Yes. And when I watched those original NBC broadcasts, because I'd love to talk about Bleecker Street too, because yeah. that also was now was it purpose built for um, NBC's opera series or was it an Saint? adaptation? No, yeah. The Saint was done for Broadway. It was done for Broadway and then adapted to the NBC. What, but even- Do you know that Mignon Dunn was in the original chorus? You know, the chorus of
1: like eight people? Yeah. She was in the chorus. Of the Saint Oblique. it was her, one of our first jobs in New York. You know, as, as a 24-year-old mezzo soprano, long before she came Mignon Dunn, who sang in Salome and at the Met, everything else, and Das Lied von der Erde. She was. She told me she was in the chorus of the Saint Bablico Street.
0: And yet, those are gigantic houses with prosceniums and audiences stuck in their seats. All and right. yet, when you watch these NBC television, this hits close to my close to home because it's yeah. something I'm kind of passionate about. Something I'm continuing to explore i made a chamber opera film passion of scrooge with john deke who was oh, kind of a, yeah, yeah, bass a bass player over New York at the Phil Philharmonic. Harmonic. yeah sure oh, he's a great guy and so uh the when you watch these old nbc films the camera moves mm-hmm. but it's not it's not the same sort of thing that we get that's right. very static now you know sure. the met on demand People were going to movie theaters and dressing up yeah. to sit in the same seats where you watch Rambo kill an army or whatever, right? <laughs> and and they're usually cameras off the stage from the back of the house, right. sort of just watching the proscenium presentation, right? right? But these NBC operas were sort of purpose no. built around the oh, operas. No, and there was right. there was a conversation. You know, yes. it was it was even so, no, I, I just would love to know more. I mean, were they, was there an orchestra off to the side? Because when I was watching some of these old clips, you can tell when they're fudging yeah. and, oh, and lip-syncing. But I believe those no, were... No, they're, they're played. And, and were so played. we're hearing everything live.
1: Yes, we're hearing everything
0: live. And were they live broadcasts too?
1: They that might've... I don't know. Okay. Uh, well, they were certainly recorded live. Whether they were live to a public or sure. something else.
0: Okay, And a technicality, really, because yeah. what's, what interests me is um were they singing there was there was no overdubbing yes. they were just no
1: they were singing those interesting
0: yeah. and that that has a very different sound than some of the famous like franco zeffirelli right. films right well, the films where it was where it was or uh, oh, the Van films also yeah
1: that's right but the um the, the some that's in between that is i don't know if you've seen it or you must have the minotti film of the console, yeah which was done in the early 60s i think they probably made the film listening to, to playback. But the very, very idea that, oh yeah, we're gonna make a film of the console and that Giancarlo, who was a stage director, would be involved with this thing. Giancarlo was a great stage director, by the way. Sure. Whether it was Manolo Scull at the Met or any of his other stuff, he knew how to get people to deliver text. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Don't just stand up there and and make beautiful sounds. He really demanded that you be the character. I think, I
0: think I've heard people uh, I think he was involved maybe more than a lot of directors would have wanted him to be involved. <laughs> I heard yes. talk to somebody from Delaware who was you know, he was late too often delivering uh, scores and uh, oh, yeah, um, he'd fly in pretty late. Yeah. But the St. of Bleecker Street, I, ha- I mean, I'm just kind of inter- recently very interested in it. As a new New Yorker, I'm, I found out that I'm a block away from Bleecker Street. <laughs> and, you know, it's a little a little bit north of Little Italy to be authentically called a Little Italy opera. Got to
1: go to the Festival of San Gennaro. It all takes place at, at that time. Yeah. Well,
0: this significantly reduced in size Little yes. Italy. Yes.
1: Oh, but back, even when I was a kid, well, let's say 25, 30 years ago when I went to the Festival of San Gennaro, it was a big deal. So and even, and, and even in the '70s, it was a big deal.
0: Tell us what that opera does to you and what it means to you.
1: It's it's it hits me as the most nostalgic. I mean, it's, it's um, it no other opera sort of typifies my musical youth, the beginning of that professional career, like the Saint of Bleecker, because it was a pivotal moment, knowing Giancarlo, um, and then. Then he brought me to Washington and I conducted other wa- there and then connecting with the festival on both sides. It was just, again, I was just doing what I did for a lot of other composers, but it hit upon somebody who desperately needed that interaction at that part in, in his life. And so how, it, how does it, it
0: sound it, in Minotti's canon?
1: It, it, As it, his most
0: Puccini-like, his his most romantic. Um a much well, actually, undervalued... I mean, I'm nitpicking, but define romantic, <laughs> right? Because Most could,
1: aria-driven. In other words, it is oh. aria-driven and orchestral uh, fullness because the medium, the saint, and the console are basically chamber operas. And even if you do them with a larger string section, it has a dryness to it, intentional. You know, it has a reality... Um,
0: Arthur Miller-esque.
1: Yes, kind of. exactly. And it feels like that time period... It feels like you're watching almost on the waterfront. You know, mm-hmm. you, you, it, ha, it it feels black
0: and white, hard American realism. Right.
1: Whereas yeah. this feels a little bit more of a throwback to the world of Puccini, a grand upper world, because it's the only one that has this large, has a large chorus in it, and and they they get the the finale of Act One in its own way is as powerful as the todayum, uh in Tosca that Puccini. It's the same formula of he knew exactly how to get to you, and so he used. You can't say the tricks, but he used the knowledge of verismo opera vocabulary in in the Saint of more than any of the other works.
0: Is he dealing with his identity as an Italian, uh, his history with religion?
1: Uh, big time, big time. That too, that too. It was a, it was close to his heart. And since we're talking about this cross fertilization of personalities. It was written three years before uh, West Side Story. And both people have told me the same story, which was, Minotti was like, oh, you know, there'd be no there would be no West Side Story if, if it hadn't been for St. Oblicker because Lenny came on more than one occasion to see the St. Oblicker Street because um, it was on Broadway. And, okay, I took that at face value for whatever it was, okay, because it showed that you can write a New York-themed piece, a hard edge. Uh, you, know, you can use that because that was a contemporary
0: work. The, the Saint Oblicker was set to be contemporary just like West Side Story was intended to be contemporary. This is super interesting because I started finding out that West Side Story pivoted midway into its conception yes. to become more of an urban drama right. and it was originally closer to the Romeo and Juliet paradigm. That's right. So I, right. I everything makes sense the way you just said that he it. That he went and he saw the Saint Oblicker just that two years before two, three years before on
1: more than one occasion and then Again, backing up to Lenny and uh, which I was very honored to be in his presence a number of times, even away from the entourage. But this one time with John Corleano and I, and I know exactly when it was because it was January of 90. And when the Berlin Wall came down, it was in, um, um, no, of, of 89, yes, of 89. And he went to conduct Beethoven 9 in Berlin. Right after that was done, and John and I had finished doing the orchestration for Ghost of Versailles, come January of 90, because Lenny died in, in November of, of 90. So he was tired and he went after that in January down to Key West. John and I also we were blowed out. We had finished this thing at the Met, we had put it all together, and we said, let's go down. By coincidence, while we're in Key West and Lenny's in Key West, they find we find out that we were there Lenny called us up and said come on over for dinner just me and John and it was me and John and Bernstein and Craig you know Craig the, the assistant and then the people who owned this house and the chef and whatever but no entourage just basically the four of us eating dinner that became like a four and a half hour five hour dinner one of the first things he said to me was and this is only um, two months after I conducted the Santa Bleecker Street because I did it in November of '89, he said to me, "Hey, I hear you did the St. Bleecker Street in Philadelphia a couple months ago." I'm looking. I look at John Crowley and I go, "Oh, Lenny, how did you know that?" He said, "Well, I have my spies. I know what you're doing. I'm keeping up on you. I know what you're doing." I said, "Yeah, yeah. I, I really, I, I love that opera, and it was great working with John Carlo. And the, in fact, they just asked me to do it next year in, in D.C." I said, "Do you, do you know the St. Bleecker?" He said, "Do I know the Sainte He Says. I've seen it many times on Broadway. And he said that. He told it. I saw it many, many times. It was a very, very, very important work at the time. And we discussed for the next couple of minutes the Sainter Bleeker. And I told him what I did with the orchestration and I did this and I got along with John Carlo and the director and stuff like that. But he was the one who brought it forth. He said, I, hear, I heard you did a, you know, Sainter Bleaker. I heard it really went well. I mean, as a positive thing. He was saying, I heard good things about that scene, Bleaker down there. I don't know who told him. Don't know how. But it was it was it was a beginning of a long evening, uh, of which I also was instrumental, I believe, in convincing him that the young people's concerts should be bought by Amberson and put out at that time on cassette, because I said I saw I'd seen a couple of them recently and they still hold up now as well as they ever did. And, and he looked at Craig. He goes, Yeah, you really think so? And then John Court. Corleano chimed in because John was one of the assistants. He had worked on the, on the scripts back then. He, he was working as an assistant score reader or whatever it was for those things because his father was the concert master of the New York Philharmonic at that time. And so we're talking about those things. And he said to Craig, look into that. We'll, we'll, we'll see. that. I said, they're really worth it, Lenny. Don't let them disappear into some museum of TV. They should be available. People should still be able to, to buy them, rent them, or make them available.
0: And it just, just it, it just brings to mind that timeless rumination you know if only composers had another 20 years or something because it seems like leonard bernstein was distracted by a lot he was expected to be a lot of things to a lot of people but imagine if he had written his Bleaker street you know his he, he he doesn't have a large operatic uh canon no
1: and i asked him about that i asked him is there is there an, is there an opera that you wanted to write because you know he was still alive i said is there an opera that you want to write and he said, well, opera is the sort of, same thing with conducting, because it came in the same conversation as Lenny, why don't you conduct more opera? Because I was telling him how much I loved conducting the opera since I was at the Met and we were talking about all sorts of stuff. And he said, opera is a young man's game.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that. I mean, because you, I, I I saw you saying that opera, I think to, to a lot of young Uh, I would say even millennials, actually. I mean, how ironic that we're going to say that millennials like opera more than the prior to millennials. (laughs) I mean, that freaks me out, right? But yeah, like I have a friend named Bora Yoon I just made a film with and she's writing an opera. It's very hip right now. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying she's doing it because it's hip, but I mean, just there's a lot of people writing operas because that is a vital medium. Granted, it's not quite the same as the... Uh, aria style Mm -hmm. um, of the mid-century composers, to be sure. Some of them I wish would study more of that to see what they can take from it. That too. Especially
1: learning how to write for the voice, because the only way you can learn to write an opera really well is understand what the capabilities of a singer are.
0: Well, let's rewind to the 60s and 70s, though. So why was there a pause in composers wanting to write for opera?
1: because the Opera Houses decided that they'd had all the good operas that they wanted to promote. If the Opera Houses were convinced that there were still composers writing operas that people wanted to hear and see, but the contemporary music scene was so dissonant and so ugly, that to spend a million dollars or a half a million back then to produce an opera that was never going to be seen or heard again was the problem. I, I think it was, the, the composers were not writing things that the public wanted to hear. And at the same time, the houses were just becoming more conservative. I had a big fight with Levine and I didn't care because, and this was like 1988 when I was his assistant, and I was lamenting the fact that the Met in his tenure had not done a contemporary opera. And he was music director and artistic director. And that the Ghost of Versailles was going to become the first one after he was already there for 15, 17 years. And he tried to tell me, oh, the board won't go for it. And this. I said, but you're the music director. You're the artistic director. I said, are you telling me that if you walk in there and you tell your board that 5% of the operas that get done on the stage of the Met, 5% is going to be dealing with living composers to promote the next generation. You're going to tell me that they're not going to buy your vision as artistic director, that 5% is a worthy investment. And he said, well, you know, you know 5%. I said, how many operas did you do last year at the Met? They do 22 productions. I said, uh, that's more than your 5%. You're telling me that one a year, one opera a year? And it doesn't mean that they all have to be new. Some can, some of them could have been something that was done that was 10 years ago. or Bar- Barbara Minotti. that's right. Or something that might have been done by another opera company that you bring in. But the point is, you can also co-produce with other opera companies. How about for that? Well, the Met doesn't co-produce. That's what he told me back then. Although they wound up co-producing, you know, the Ghost of Versailles with Chicago. But it was the Met. if They owned it, you know.
0: Let's take a moment to talk about Antony then. Because maybe they got burned. Right. I mean, that's fresh in their memory that they opened this grand opera house and it's supposedly kind of a train wreck. Although I think you and uh, and certainly John Mocherry especially have really unpacked how it's a lot more complicated than it having been a total disaster. But it definitely probably left them with a bad taste about commissioning American Well, they did Morning
1: Becomes a Lecture the following year by Marvin David Levy. Okay, Uh, You got people have to remember the context. Even the Met back then when Lincoln Center opened. Yes, they opened Lincoln Center with Anthony and Cleopatra with Tommy Shippers conducting, ta-da. Dream Team. That's right, Zeffirelli, who was very, very young at that time, and then you get Sam Barber, great. Lanton. And Leonten, and um, Justino Diaz, a young Puerto Rican uh, bass baritone who was gonna sit there and, and be Anthony. I mean, it was, these were young stars at that time. By the way, you know, when you talk now about giving equal opportunity to, you know, black artists, Puerto Rican artists, whatever it is. Excuse me, we open up the Met, in whatever it was, 95 or something, I mean, in 65 or whatever it was, uh, and it was an African-American soprano and a Puerto Rican baritone. Uh,
0: you know, I mean, it, it's, anyway. Well, what kinds of Capricorn conversations <laughs> were you in on when it came to Minotti's feelings about Antony? Well, the thing was this. It, it it failed because... And by the way, Minotti was sort of cut out.
1: He, he was did... cut out. Yeah, remember, this is um, Barbara's second opera. Vanessa was his first, which is was a success and still remains a success. It's done quite often. It, it never... And you've it, done it how many times? I did it, da- I did it down in Dallas. Yeah, that's right. That one time. And I had the good fortune of having Minotti look at my score. And I went through the whole opera with him because it was his libretto and he was the first stage director of it. So nobody knows it better. So I wanted to prepare myself for it. And we spent the whole day listening to it. And he would say, Sam wanted this here. Do this. This should be freer here. This should be this. Make sure you tell the stage director that this is what Erica's doing here. Make sure that Vanessa doesn't overindulge this, but she is free to do that. We went through every single detail of that. After that, we went through Anthony and Cleopatra. Because, because I'd received a phone call from Leonard Slacken, who wanted to do a concert version. This is when he was in St. Louis. Of Anthony and Cleopatra because he wanted to do works that were uh, controversial or unfinished. So he wanted to do he wanted to do Anthony and Cleopatra in concert form, and another concert where he wanted to do um, the final scene from Lulu. Uh, he wanted to do the final scene from Turandot. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But this particular concert where he wanted to do a concert version of the original
0: version. He is, he in fact he told me that in the interview for the documentary. And yeah. it, it didn't make it into the final cut because it was really in the weeds, but he is passionate about reviving that original version. The original version. version. So, so so let's unpack that because you're you're sort of a Minotti ally. That's right. And we it and of course the other way of looking at it is that Minotti sort of sauced it up. You well know?
1: <laughs> Well, here's here's the story from the horse's mouth. I can tell you unfiltered what Minotti told me having been there, you know, kind of firsthand, he said that when they conceived of the opera before they met, and they got Zeffirelli, part of the deal was they were going to showcase and highlight everything the new opera house could do, which means elevators up the wazoo. You know, that this stage can disappear and this can go up. So, Zeffirelli created this libretto where you're going between Athens, Rome, whatever the hell it is, that you know, in the libretto, you can quick change as if it were a film. The idea is Zeferelli had this cinematic version and this brand new opera house at Lincoln Center is going to be the only opera house in the world that can do this. Right. It
0: had the biggest Lazy Susan ever made.
1: That Lazy Susan, but also whole whole sets that can go. As we know, if anyone's seen Seferelli's Bohem, that you can go from Act One, you know, from that little thing and go to the streets of Paris in a minute and a half is mind boggling. But whatever it was in 65, 66, you know better than I do the opening day of that, the idea that they were going to unveil this technical marvel that is going to be the Metropolitan Opera, which is going to be the beacon of all opera houses in the world, that we can do this, that we can make these set changes like a Broadway theater. And Boom, that set's going to disappear. And then from the wings, because a lot of it isn't stuff that goes up and down. elevators, elevates, but also stuff, enough wing space that you can push something all the way upstage. And then something from stage left can go sliding into place. Something can drop down. Something can get pushed on top of it. It had all of this. So they wanted to highlight that. So Zeffirelli wrote a libretto that would make that happen with the same thing too. Now you have choruses. Now you're dealing with Anthony Cleopatra. So they had, this, they had this idea of these multiple Greek choruses. Again, they come and appear they you know on this riser from the right, and then they disappear, and they go away, and they come back, and they do all this stuff. They were built in as a musical concept, which is not Sam Barber's compositional Thing. He didn't say, oh, I'm going to write something like that. They said, no, these are the technical things that we'd like to highlight. We're going to highlight the Met Chorus is going to be like no other chorus in the world. The Backstage is going to be like... So they wanted they wanted to outdo Turandot times 10, okay? They wanted to have this grand opera be that... Now, if you know Sam Barber's music, he isn't necessarily a grand opera kind of guy. Sure, Vanessa is actually a bunch of duets, trios, and then he has this wonderful
0: ensemble at the end that he created. But even that ensemble is very, very, very intimate. And biographer Barbara Heyman, she emphasizes how even the original Shakespeare, he was respectful to the nature of the Shakespearean play that was not actually very romantic. (laughs) It was kind of an intellectual uh, (laughs) sparring between two people.
1: And so if you look at that and you look at Vanessa or you look at what Sam Barbaris, he was a songwriter, a wonderful baritone. Minotti actually gave me Uh, The River is Wide. He gave me that uh, Mm -hmm. little thing. Yeah, Yeah. he he gave me I I made a cassette. He said I could dub it at that time, an old cassette. I now digitized it and passed it around to people who deserve to have it. But that was from Sam Barber's Curtis recital. Mm -hmm. And so you hear Sam Barber... So you
0: sang Dover Beach.
1: Yeah, and he's singing it and he's playing it and you go, wow, this is fantastic. But it gives you an insight as to what Sam's world was. It was a more... um, like you said before, more uh, modern classicist. And it wasn't,
0: even his operas were not meant to be grand opera. So, But that's all in the past. Now we have people not, arguing for the original version, and then you have the well, Juilliard revision that Minotti created.
1: Well, but according to Minotti, after the, the failures of the opening night, the breakdowns, the technical breakdowns of it, the disaster, the technical disaster that was Anthony and Cleopatra, Sam Barber never recovered from that. And according to Minotti, he never really wrote after that. He was so heartbroken he basically skipped town, went over to Europe, and you know, got out of Dodge as quickly as possible, and was heartbroken. He felt that he could no longer compose, that it was too much of an embarrassment. It was, and it was Minotti that convinced him, no, the music is great. Let's write an opera that let's fix the opera and write it so that it can be done in a normal opera house with the normal amount of scene changes, make it three acts, do this, write a duet for Anthony and Cleopatra, which was missing in the first. So he wrote an, uh, a duet that works, another aria for Cleopatra that wasn't there. and So they, they, according to Minotti, turned it into an opera that Sam Barber was proud of, with, with no hope of getting it done. In fact, it, was got, it finally got done at Juilliard. But it was therapy. It was therapy for Barber to realize the opera the way he wanted and to create a libretto that was functional for normal opera houses. Because otherwise, Anthony and Cleopatra, as it stood, wouldn't be done anywhere. It's not like you can go to Kansas City Mm -hmm. and do the original version of Anthony and Mm Cleopatra. You probably couldn't even go to San Francisco and do it. In other words, it was so costly, so big. So even Sam said, okay, and they worked on that, and that was, Minotti said, basically, even though they were no longer an item anymore, they were friends, but Minotti wanted to rescue his pal, his long-term friend, and believe that the music itself was of high value, but that the distortion of the multiple choruses and the 80 million scene changes made it impractical to be performed and actually was out of the scope of anything that Sam Barber would ever write by himself.
0: I think this is good. I mean, I think you're adding a, a lot to the to the conversation about it because you're the first person who's really emphasized how the the music changes were not led by Minotti the music changes were led by the need to undo the asper- the, the stage aspirations right. of the original production. That's right. So it wasn't about tweaking the music to sound different. It was about, it was about saying what's what works That's in right. a normal, non-crazy production situation. That's right.
1: How can we pare this down? That's why it became three acts, so you can set the scene, things. How can we do this? And then also to to, in hindsight, say, okay, well, this character needs to be developed a little more. Let's let's, let's do this duet. You know, l- let's give them that romantic moment. Let's, let's do what Sam wants his music to fulfill, as opposed to the tail wagging the dog a little bit, which was the Zeffirelli expectations and the technical aspirations leading the barber part of the dog around.
0: But it's also like landscape painting. I mean, once you're in the new environment... You do adapt adaptations based on the new environment. Maybe what's called for in a different context than this. There's a lot of busy, busyness going on in the original production. Yes, a gigantic set. Uh, yes. lots of motion, lots of animals. <laughs>
1: right, right. Uh, everything that the Met could
0: offer was on display, and it was gone. And if was you gone. pare it down, That's and right. so it needs to be filled up, even if
1: it were a success. Even if okay, let's say it's not a success, yeah, right. and and you know everybody goes yay, Sam, fabulous, fabulous. He still would have done it because you you're not going to get a performance even in if Vienna. it was a success. You mean right? Yeah, even yeah, if it were yeah. had been a success, yeah. it's still not going to be done in Vienna. It's mm-hmm. still not going to be done in Philadelphia. It's yeah. still not going to be done anywhere else. So the fact that it didn't succeed, and 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 in a certain way, Barbara felt betrayed by the uh, conventions that he had to uh, the arm twisting that was done. All right, so they, they bought the new one. Now you get um, you, you get Slacken who wants to do it in concert version. So I dutifully, because I knew Sl- Slacken, he said, we be, you know, uh, Minotti won't answer my calls because at that time Schirmer, you know, you go to the publisher and the publisher says, sorry, Minotti is the executor of the Barber estate. Um, listen, uh, in, in fact, we had, Minotti and I, just six months before, gone through these unpublished Barber songs And there were half a dozen of them. And Minotti said, let's go through these and find out which ones Sam might have wanted published. There were a couple of them that were just too young, that were kiddie songs, and we discarded those. But we allowed two or three more to be published. So it wasn't as Minotti had this sort of thing, but he took his role as gatekeeper seriously. And he, he told me, he said, Sam did not want... He did not want that other version to ever see the light of day, the original version, that that was his wish. And why doesn't doesn't the world leave them alone? A composer went back, Puccini went back and finished Butterfly and then did four revisions of it, not just because there was a, a, a failure at La Scala opening night, because he made it a better opera. And why don't people trust that a composer know what's best for the piece and then sort of morbidly they want to go dig the grave out and people still dig the grave out of the original Bohem, I, I mean, the original Butterfly. And they say, oh, let's go back. Uh, you know, it really didn't need to. The first version is great. Mm, Puccini kind I mean, of had a
0: good idea. This is tricky, though, because then we don't get Samuel Barber's Second Symphony, right? Because he tore it up.
1: <laughs> well, it depends on what you want it for.
0: Mm. You
1: know, it depends on what you want it for. If, if it's for musicological reasons, it's one thing. If, if you're... It depends on if you're beating your own personal drum, you know? It, yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. You know, and there's in this, this sp- case... In this case, I've never seen Menotti that angry, ever. You can be angry, a little hissy fit at this thing, the other thing, oh, if the stage wasn't ready during, you know, I mean, you know, little normal angers. But this one, he was rabid. And he started screaming at me for saying, listen, well, you know, Slakin wants to do this. It's only a concert version. And it's, you know, he, I mean, he got, he wanted to throw things, you know, and what he allowed me, they said, listen, here it is, he gave he gave me, in his closet, was a piano vocal of the original, but he also had a cassette, which was from the Met, you know, live performance, you know, from the, whatever it was, uh, you know, and he had that on cassette too. He said, and he allowed me to make a copy. He said, because I prepared myself with him, we went back and forth, we went through the original, and we went through the revision, because he wanted to show me, we did this, we did that, So. I, and I still have both of them at home. you know i ha, I have piano vocal of both versions. I have the cassette from that original Met version, and I have obviously the the CD with Badia doing from Juilliard and okay, we, we were comparing, going back and forth and and he he said, as long as I'm alive, it will never be done. i this this opera killed Sam Barber. Now, you know what, what are you supposed to say after that? This robber killed Sam Barber, and uh, tell me more. And he went through the whole thing. So I, I, I when I told Slack, and that, he, he, you know, he was equally as pissed off at me. He wanted me to pull a rabbit out of the hat. I said, you don't know what wrath came flying in my head. It was like that, you know, Energizer Bunny thing. You know, you sit back then you know you know the the the, the thing came flying it was a storm that came flying over I my mean, head. you
0: know you could also say that sometimes composers are too close to their work too so there's that too i i think you you used to the terminology used of musicological reasons is legit right? Like sometimes even audiences enjoy experiences that that are explained as musicological. Sure. Because we like to hear the first incarnation of a piece I, and then proceed to sure. see it's how... Sure, it's Stravinsky's
1: Symphony of Winds, you know, the, the, you, the, the one that he revised is one thing. You go back and you get the original and it's, you know, for musicology, if you're a composer, oh, it's sort of interesting because the original one has got instruments in it that nobody can really find. And it's so many meter changes that are unnecessary. But that's where his mind was at that time. Then he made it more practical, and it, so yes. And then the published one is the second one, and that is the one that we should do. But yeah, if you want to record for you know for musicological reasons, but people shouldn't be saying, "Oh, that's the one," and then making up their own scenario about why Stravinsky did it. Uh, you know why the other one was taken away.
0: I mean, the irony of all of this is that during the heights of these people's lives, this was epic. This was like the stakes were high, right? Yeah. Now you can barely get an Anthony performance in a decade, right? That's right? A single one. Yeah. So it's almost like causes it would cause one to lighten up, anyways. Right. <laughs> lighten up, <anyway. laughs> Yeah,
1: but from an authentic. Happy was, to have anything. It was personal.
0: It was very personal. Certainly. In I the
1: way that, that I, in a way I've never seen before.
0: Yeah. I just love to ask you about um, ballet also, because it's another medium that you dabbled in a bit. I mean, you're not known for that, but at the same time, um, I love Sebastian. It's just one of those oh, yeah. great pieces of fun. his perhaps neglected, although maybe yeah. may, maybe major ballet companies take it up every once in a while. Um, but yeah, what was your experience doing that?
1: Uh, that was a Martha Graham commission, and cause I think her husband at that time was the Sebastian. Um, we did it in Spoleto, and we had, I forget the name of the, the dancer, Um He was phenomenal. He was phenomenal. Russian guy who left Russia, and he did it. But yeah, we got to do it in Spoleto. And again, it was during that period where we were trying to do all of Giancarlo's works little by little. Um, And I had just finished revising uh, the cello concerto that we did with cello, whatever it was called, cello fantasy. Um, Also, also Apocalypse, which was one of his first. He didn't have a lot of large orchestra pieces. Apocalypse was one of those pieces that he really, really wanted to revise. And so we did. And coming through all of that, he said, "Oh, I want to do Sebastian." Didn't, so, didn't
0: you develop one of your own pieces for ballet first? Mine? No, not one oh, of my. Own. I, I thought there was some like uh, they, like a test run of one of your movements of a work or something like that. No, no, okay. no, nothing of mine. So you didn't never had an instinct to write for ballet?
1: No, I would love to. I would love to because I just love working with dancers, um, doing that. And then I had the. The good fortune of doing the balancing with the in, in Monte Carlo, La Valse and Vals Nobla together, mm. which is the balancing thing. And every time I come across that, or David Del Tredici's uh, in memory of summer day, which was done by National Ballet of Canada, Glentetley's mm. choreography, which was stupendous, fantastic. Right. And I went and conducted that. Um, yeah, I, I just I just love dealing with with dancers and, and and their rhythmic world.
0: I mean, I'm going there because I'm interested in other mediums that overlap and that intersect because um, the other thing I see is that you've worked a lot in film. Okay. Yeah. So it's not only about laying down the tracks for incidental music <laughs> for films, but also treating film composers, uh, you know, get working with them. And, and also yes. in turn, what I'm particularly fascinated with these days is the identity of film composers when they, leave the screen and they write concert music. Mm-hmm. And so Ennio Morricone, John Williams, you you've yes. you've known these people yes. going between worlds, but they're known for their film music. And then you know you knew Leonard Bernstein who only yes. made one film score. Yeah, and
1: that was a pretty damn good one.
0: It was, but it frustrated him. It frustrated
1: and him because because <laughs> Yeah, but it shouldn't have. So, uh, it so, so in other words, tell it me have.
0: what it, what is it like in the studio you've worked director with
1: Director Reigns. Just you can't have an ego as a composer. You cannot. I, I know of only one example in, in, in the time of, of composing where the director said, well, the composer's vision is better for this. I'm going to make the scene longer. <laughs> I know of only one. Uh, and that was with Steven Spielberg and, and, and John Williams. And that was the flying scene in ET. Because no matter how much, you know, because it's all special effects anyway, but no matter how much they try to cut it to fit what Spielberg had, because and then the sequences no matter how much they cut it, it, it wasn't as satisfying. And so after trying and trying to fix it, after a while, Spielberg said, you know what, you leave it, it. we're gonna add more stuff
0: to it. Well, it's one of the most famous sound bites, though, is that Spielberg yeah. did confess that half of his movie's value comes from the music score. Come- and music, when it is through composed, and then yes. the film is cut intimately with that. That's right. It just That is why that sequence is one of the most moving sequences in Given film the history.
1: opportunity. Unfortunately, there are very few films that actually call for real orchestras and real composers. Most of it is just getting synth piled on now. It's a question of layering synth effects because you can get Vienna string sounds. You can get, you can get samples that can fool most people's ears. And so what they do is they tend to just keep layering and layering and layering. So fewer and fewer composers um, with orchestral vocabulary are being called upon to do films.
0: So where, what do you, when do you hear John Williams? When do you hear Ennio Morricone? Is it actually in their concert music, pure music, well, uh, if you, you will?
1: Know, Morricone, the bit Once Upon a Time in America is sensational. And my favorite is Cinema Paradiso. Uh, that anytime the, the soul of the film can be expressed through music, and the great directors knew that, you know, that's why whether it was Sergio Leone or, or Berlucci, you know, that, that they, these guys knew that to get a real composer to write a film score, or Nino Rolta for Fellini, these were all guys who were capable of existing in a classical world and had written some symphonies or operas or whatever. Max Steiner, Max Steiner, you know, met with Mahler for crying out loud before doing Gone with the Wind, or Franz Waxman, you know, for, for the, the, the soundtracks he did. Um, and my favorite, really, is Korngold. Mm. Korngold's film scores are, since there would be no John Williams without Korngold. Mm. You know, you, you look at Seawolf. <laughs> oh, my God. Or, or the original um, Robin Hood. These scores, Strauss, Richard Strauss said, my heir is Korngold. Mm. You know, at 27, 26, writing Die Totenstaat. He was, But when he came to the States went out to LA and wrote these films. He was running
0: away from something too. Yes, he was
1: running away, as was Waxman, who's also Jewish, but Waxman was from Berlin uh, and Max
0: Steiner and and Krongold were both Viennese. And it was big money. I mean, if you want a job quickly when you get somewhere else, I mean, that was going to be And they also
1: had no ego also because whatever Mm -hmm. the director told them to do, they would write a cue to fit that. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, and it was as simple as that. I mean, where this inevitably leads us to ask, why did Barber and Minotti, how, w- w- were they ever confronted with this opportunity or did they have an attitude about it? Like this is lower than us. No,
1: I, I never, never heard of Minotti regretting or even discussing uh, film scores. Only that Niro Rota was somebody he knew from his childhood and he was friendly with him and that he had respect for that mm-hmm. because they were in that Scogliere thing, they, they knew each other.
0: Do you think Hollywood never came calling?
1: I think Hollywood had lots of people that would, would bow and scrape, yeah. you know, a, a, and do it and, and do a great job at it for that matter. I, I think that's something that people had to decide that they wanted to do. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But um, yeah, I, I, I so I, I think Lenny just didn't want to after on the waterfront didn't want to deal with. Um, the modifications or, or writing. Oh, now it's got to be a 30-second cue. It's got to be a minute and a half. Or we're still, no, that crescendo there gets in the way of the dialogue. You know, you write a beautiful piece of music, which I've done. I, we, I, I love doing this stuff. With Elliot Goldenthal, like you say, we've done a lot of films. We, Elliot won the Academy Award for Frida, but we've also done Heat with Al Pacino, Robert De Niro. We did one of the Batman ones. Uh, sphere, or pile of But the great fun is really how quickly can you modify the cue you do, did, keeping the intent of the original but also making the director happy. So if you do Batman and you, you know, Elliot wrote a great cue, we go and it might be a minute and a half long. Because people don't realize that there are short cues that you just stack end to end to deal with long things. So whether it's a fight scene or a romance scene, people think, oh, well, you wrote a ten minute piece of music. No, They tend to be shorter pieces of music, just connected. They fade in and through, they dissolve, they do all sorts of things. So if you have a a cue that's one minute long, let's say, and it's, it's a romantic one, or it's one that there's some sort of intimacy involved with it. So you rehearse it, you throw it up on the screen, and then you record it quickly. But then you immediately go back and listen to it, and the director goes, hmm, that gets in the way of that word. What can you do? Or, I like this. Can, this, can it stay quiet there? And then maybe crescendo after they finish this sentence. So immediately you run out and you say, that bar four four becomes two four, that crescendo becomes a diminuendo. And instead, three bars later, now you make the crescendo. Horns tacit this, come in over there. So you're changing orchestration, tempo, you're changing, you're modifying quickly. Mm-hmm. And the LA guys are, are so fast, they'll just do that. It's their skill. You go there, And then you record it again, you go back there. And the director goes, that's great, but how about this one other thing? And you might do a cue two, three, four times. Even though you've prepared them with one ahead of time, a synth version, the reality is something else. You go through it, and the composer has to be also flexible, solve it. And that's why I like to do it with him, being a composer. We go in there, we do it, and then the director says, now it's perfect. Go on to the next cue. And you do that. I don't think that that's a skill that these guys wanted to... And, and,
0: and I'm seeing, you know, your your skill as a essentially a negotiator or a diplomat, you know, and that must be <laughs> a what realizer. The, that must be what conducting is altogether. So, I mean, you are mainly known to the largest audience as a conductor. So, I mean, I want to hear a little bit about that. But I have to, I have to sneak in. I mean, as a new New Yorker, the footage of you conducting at the Statue of Liberty concert. I mean, <laughs> by the way, and on a serious note, it kind of I teared up because. There's shots of the Twin Towers. The Twin Towers, yes. And we're coming up on the 20th in a, a couple weeks, you know. Yes. And, um, yeah, tell, that, me, tell me about that experience. That
1: was shot the summer before. That was shot in, in 2000 with Bocelli on the New Jersey side in that park. And I forget the name of the park. But they And there's a funny thing about that concert. Because they wanted to have the skyline of New York and the Twin Towers in the background. If you look at that, there is no background. So we're in the middle of a field and nobody can hear anything. The soprano or Bocelli can't hear past me. First violinist can't even hear the cellos. The, the bassist can't hear the first violinist. The trumpets can't hear. Nobody can hear anyone.
0: And remind us of the occasion. The occasion is?
1: Um, what was the occasion? I gotta even remember, what was the occasion?
0: I don't know. So this isn't... It was just,
1: just a summer concert. It was Bocelli. It was a big Bocelli concert that they decided to do with him visiting the Statue of Liberty.
0: I see, and national,
1: national Television. It was a PBS live concert. It was one of the first times that all the PBS, because his other thing, you know, his uh, Night in Toscana, which came out in 97, 98, was a big deal. So this was only two years later, and they wanted to do this big thing for all the PBS's live across the country. So it was a live event. Um, and you
0: couldn't hear each other. <laughs> and
1: nobody can hear anything. Nobody, We couldn't hear anything, but it looked great. And I just told the orchestra, I said, just, just trust me, follow me. Just, just, to, Ana Maria Martinez, who was the soprano, and she had to sing Un Bel Di. And when it comes up to, dintum, kisara, kisara, e come sarà giunto. And it's just the three muted trumpets. She goes, all I hear is the wind going by. I said, just, just, just go with me. I'll go with you. And then when you watch on TV, everything seems I, you
0: know, telephoto lenses do everything. It's kind of like you know, remember, remember the scenes on beaches when the pandemic was starting to hit. They were like you know, right next to each other. You know, right. well, they're no, not exactly. not right. really. They're, they're 20
1: <laughs> feet apart. But that's what that concert was like. And then they did a big thing of us visiting the Statue of Liberty and and talking about uh, that that thing. But that was that was a, a moving event to to be there. And, and you're right. If if you see any of those clips, that was. Uh, that's something to see the two towers.
0: Well, so I hours. have to have to tiptoe into a little gossip, and it doesn't have to be personal, but it sort of is. I mean, I saw an interesting, uh, kind of a snarky essay by Ann Maget, and we we um we were we were I will say stuck with her for a long stretch in Washington as the classical critic of the Post. But in dealing with your work, there was this interesting thing, and it's not about her; it's about an instinct that critics seem to have, where they seem desperate to categorize things mm-hmm. cleanly. <laughs> And it popularity is a, a factor in yes. that, but it certainly has to do with genre. Mm-hmm. It's a very record bin mentality, which is also sort of funny when you think about it because record bins don't exist anymore. <laughs> really, but yeah, it, it was funny because it was almost an attempt to blame both you and the public for needing categories. Right. But the writer is the person who's in control of even paying attention to categories in the first place. Yes. And this notion that... If you reach a large audience and make them happy, that you're cashing in, that or you're that selling you, out, that you're selling out, that you're not and sincere. Then the point being made that no, it can actually cost you more, right? Because it's different than the institutions. Right. Because, um, to be honest, most people I know are in a grant proposal game. Mm-hmm. They're writing maybe not crowd pleasing contemporary music that needs subsidy, mm-hmm. and so that ironically is more going running running after the money than making people happy. Right, and something I just wrote, I'm not thinking I'm going to make a penny on this thing, yeah. So labors of love. I mean, I want to yes. go down that list, okay. but I'll start with a particularly recent one, A Grateful Tale. <laughs> I mean, also the the other cliche of going to concerts is it's like, oh God, here we go again. Like the person who got paid, what, a hundred bucks to write the program notes. Right. They always talk about whether music is programmatic. Right. That's the big issue, you know, sure. and then. how can Somebody ris- do
1: that can tell a story for them.
0: And then I love the word pure as if that's like superior. Right. So is pure is when pure music happens, that's the best of oh, yeah. all. But there's a difference, isn't there? Because
1: as if Beethoven Ninth were pure, and he wrote a symphony with a chorus and four soloists in it that wasn't a church piece, that was already a distortion. And the cellos and basses are doing a recitative in there.
0: Don't da 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 da. Is there anything pure about the Ninth? So, so a Grateful Tale is about your dog, okay? But but while we're listening to the music, right? We're not being batted over the head to say what's happening right now. No. you know like what 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 where where's the dog <laughs> where is he, the dog what does the dog look like where's Fido now it's a meditation yeah. on a subject right yeah so tell us about the piece about grief
1: will tell um my wife and I had a dog Lola that died and my wife was so distraught and as old dog of owners course. are because dog let's face it becomes a, a family member and while walking dogs I began to go to dog dog parks and you see that this is a universe whether it's rich, poor, black, white, asian it doesn't make a difference. The universe comes together in a dog park. Different dogs and different people, but they all have one thing in common. They love their dogs. When this dog died, I'd become I was always a fan of Eugene O'Neill. I'd written Songs based on texts of o, O'Neill moon, moon before. Moon for the
0: Misbegotten.
1: Yeah, yeah uh, Moon for the Misbegotten, but also Song in Chaos uh, is also a text by Eugene O'Neill on on many voices. And uh, Long Day's uh, Journey Into Night, which is a piece I wrote when I was at BU, a percussion sextet. But I love the plays of Eugene O'Neill. And I came across this text called The Last Will and Testament of Silver Dean Emblem O'Neill, where um, when O'Neill's second wife, Carlotta, when their dog, Blemmy, died, Carlotta was so destroyed, she said, I can never have another dog. She was devastated. So Eugene O'Neill, being a playwright, wrote a text called The Last Will and Testament of Silver Dean Emblem O'Neill, and it's from the dog's point of view, leaving its last will and testament. But being a playwright, it's not just woe is me, I'm dying. It's very funny, it's very touching, it's also very philosophical. It talks about what dog doggy heaven is gonna be. It talks about everything, in a one page, thing. But ultimately the point is to let the owner off the hook to love another dog. Don't take that, oh, blemmy died. I can never have another one. I loved him so much. I can never love another dog. It's no, if you love me, then you must have another one in my image. You might not be as handsome or as smart as I am. You know, it's all this sort of thing. But if you loved a dog, then you must have another one. And that was so, so moving. The last line is, I have to say it, here lies one who loved us and whom we love. No matter how deep my sleep, I shall hear you. And not all the power of death can keep my spirit from wagging a grateful tail. Now, only a playwright could have made a pun out of tail, you know, meaning the, the, wagging my spirit will wag a grateful tail. I mean, it just, it just devastated me when I read that. And I said, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write this. I'm going to set this for my wife, for these dog park people. And it's going to be my version of, at that time, like Sam Barber, you know, Knoxville, Knoxville, which is, you know, 15 minute piece. I said, I thought maybe this would be 15, 16 minute piece. It turned out to be a 20 minute piece, fully orchestrated. And then I started moving around that. And I wrote a piece before that to set it up. And that became Let Sleeping Dogs Lie Peacefully, which is, which is a very, very lyrical meditation on what it's like to have your pet next to you. You can have the crappiest day of your life and you sit down your dog still just loves you and somehow it brings down your blood pressure. Fact, you know, that the unconditional love of that just takes you out of yourself. You go, you take a walk and you feel better. You know, you just get out of your own way. That's what that second movement became about in, a, in, a, in that way, in that meditative way. Then I said, oh, um, but then I set up something before that. The first movement became about Sirius, the dog star, and became about puppyhood and dog parks and nonsense because I didn't want it to all be serious. So the first movement is very nonsensical, the way Del Tredici can write, nobody writes nonsense better than David, can write fantasy. And I wanted fantasy. I wanted something to show my dog park experience how and, and puppyhood, but also this wonderful metaphor of Sirius as the dog star that that the Egyptians built the pyramids that actually line up, that the summer solstice lines up with that, that the Nile would crest right at that moment, and when Sirius would be shown in the sky, you know, and it's part of the, the anyway, the dog star became a point of fascination, as is that whole, so I wrote that piece, and I, you know, made puns, I called it seriously dog star, Uh, you know, I, I just had to do that, and then, I realized, okay, that's the first movement. The second movement is contemplative. The third is this, this thing uh, which has a text. And I wrote it for an actor who can sing, not a singer who can act. I decided that I wanted, in the American theater tradition, whether you have Rex Harrison or, or, um, or, or, or uh, who the hell knows, uh, Yul Brenner. You know, there's so many actors that, that hit the American stage, and they're not singers, but they can carry a tune. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what we do. So I didn't want to make it overly European by having, you know, an opera voice do it. I don't care. We have the means now mm-hmm. that we can, you know, with with small hidden microphones, we can let people do what they do. So I wanted an actor who can sing. And so that's what I wrote that for. And I kept the range simple enough. To, to do it, because I wanted that person to be blemmy. And then I realized I didn't want the, the evening to end on the sad note, and I had a Beethoven epiphany, and I knew what Beethoven must have fin- felt like finishing the Ninth Symphony. Why did he need that Ode to Joy for the chorus that, that sits around for 80 minutes to sing 10 minutes at the end? Why? Because he needed something that was so beyond human. He needed the, the, the mass of voices, that is a chorus, a Vini's course at that time with the soloists to take that message of the Ode to Joy. It wasn't good enough to just have the orchestra go-di-da-da-da. Dee, dee, da, it's very moving when the orchestra does it. But when when the chorus does it, it becomes hypersaturated to a point of ecstasy. You know, and that's 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 the musical thinking of why Beethoven. He just didn't wake up and say, I'm gonna put a chorus at the end of that. He needed something that would go beyond the ecstasy he had already created. Mm-hmm. And even a speed. This hyper thing at a moment in his life when he couldn't hear, and he was coming closer to being physically handicapped. How did he write this thing? But I said, you know what? Now I understand what why Beethoven, and I need to do that. But for me, it would be an American choir, not a European choir. So to me, a mixed gospel choir, but a concert choir, you know, it's not like they're singing, you know, hallelujah or amens, but I wanted something that felt American. So we need a choir that can sing like a normal choir, but has a gospel American feel to it. And they deliver that last line. They use that last line of the, of the third movement, but I turned it into my Americanized bernstein s sort of samba with a little bit of a rhythm section that is joyous. I wanted what O'Neill would have thought thought of as an Irish funeral. I want people to go away mm-hmm. saying, yes, I'm going to go by that dog. And there's, there's a little tail wagging dance at the end. And I called it, you know, instead of Dido's lament, I called it, you know, the last, the last one is called, you know, it's, uh, wa- the last one was called wagging the tail, for obvious reasons, called, uh, uh, the osia is Fido's lament instead of Dido's lament, you know, wagging the tail. So I had fun even punning on the last movement. To create a symphony that I think is universal. And I did it with my orchestra in Prague X amount of years ago. And we had F, F Murray Abraham, who played Salieri, and he he was blemmy, and he had the little hidden mic and people were crying. We surtitled it, even for a Czech audience. I turned it aside at the end of the third movement before starting the last movement, and I can see old Czech men crying. So we did something right. It it moved people because everyone has that feeling for a dog
0: and you have like a priority to do that and it's really in the footsteps of Minotti. i mean it's also interesting if you pair barbara Minotti or just treat barber or Minotti by himself he had the mentality of a stage director and his music showed it and it's interesting because i've seen composers workshopping pieces the kinds of composers that are coming out of today's conservatories and certainly in the past too It, it it fascinates me when they don't acknowledge filmmakers too the 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 necessity yeah. for some literary arc, something right. that structures sure. the audience in a direction mm-hmm. that has some emotional arc to it. And Barber and Minotti were known for this. They can do that. Long searing melodic lines right. that don't just come in little tiny, no. you know, moments or bursts. But you think about the large picture and where the audience is going. And also, endlessly throughout the ages, audiences have craved these experiences nice. of going on a journey and having some sort of epiphany, Right. and then that release at the end. I know. think
1: so. But even if you study Beethoven, Opus 110, you know, the Piano Sonata, there is an arc to it. It's late Beethoven, he's telling a story. Once the composers were liberated, let's say after the French Revolution, when they were no longer just writing for Duke so-and-so or Queen so-and-so when it wasn't just that, and their own ego was being put into it, and I I give Beethoven that first example, and then Schubert, and of course Berlioz with the Symphony Fantastique becomes the, the biggest ego trip of all time. Once the composer becomes the protagonist and decides they're going to tell something about their life, which basically culminates in Mahler, where all the nine and a half symphonies become a story about his life, um, and that's why Lenny was so attracted to them, anyone who, who follows a progression from Beethoven on and realize that even Beethoven was telling a story, then you're going to want to tell a story too. You're going to realize it's not just saying, woe is me, again, it's just you're going to find a thread, whether it's a melodic thread or dramatic thread or harmonic thread, but you're, you're, not gonna, you're just going to take your music to another level, and that's what I loved about classical music. As opposed to, let's say, pop music or even great jazz music, I just love the aspect of of the longer arc, and and creating things that tell bigger stories. Mm-hmm.
0: All right. So, I mean, circling back and kind of wrapping up, I mean, your your big responsibility is somewhat institutional now, um, the Czech National Symphony Orchestra, mm-hmm. and yet um, you are an American import. Yeah. <laughs> I'm wondering you know first a a couple thoughts is first um how is american music received these days in europe um i think barber and nanotti struggled a bit with what europeans expect i remember slacken saying historically it was always you know well we can do jazz but maybe nothing particularly serious right um and then also has it started has has actually to be specific czech music begun to rub off on you i mean uh certainly one of my favorite composers leo shanachek um, oh sure. uh, Besides, of course, the uh-huh. powerhouse Dvorak. Sure. But it's a very somewhat different and very how do I say? It was the beginnings of folk music making its way into, if you will, mainstream classical music. Sure. And that seems to vibe with your well, worldview.
1: How can you not deal with Dvorak doing the New World Symphony after spending x amount of months or a year here, you know, in Manhattan, and then going back and taking the da da da, da dee, and then, putting it in the Ninth Symphony.
0: So is this a pleasant surprise, cha- a t- twist in your life? Well, it's, it is in
1: that the, my orchestra is the Czech National Symphony. There's the Czech Philharmonic, which is still an older institution that deals with the bread and butter Euro stuff. The Czech National Symphony Orchestra prides itself, we pride ourselves on being flexible, being an international orchestra. The, in fact, Morricone, when he did all of his European tours, used the Czech National Symphony. When he won the Academy Award for the, um, uh, the film that he did uh Hateful Eight? Yes, exactly. He did that with the Czech National Symphony Orchestra. So for the last 15 years of his life or so, he was connected with them. So they're an orchestra that prides itself on being flexible. So if I bring to them Billy the Kid, we're going to have fun with that. Or I bring Chick Corea over and we did a Chick Corea evening. Or, or you know, if Terence Blanchard comes over or, or Wynton Marsalis... They do a lot of that. On our prom series, it's very, very uh, hipper. You know, we still do our Mahler and we still have done my Dvorak 9 with them and we'll do another one. But we've even done the number one Czech pop band of all time, Prosky Viber. We've even done a concert with them where I've arranged and orchestrated all of their big hits and done like what I did with Sting on that tour. But we, we hammer that out and have fun. So... Uh, this orchestra is very, very flexible and, and open to every kind of musical experience, which for me is, is a ball because I was given the position as music director by the members of the orchestra. Mm-hmm. This was not a committee. This was not a uh, you know some mayor of the town or some political appointee. I had guest conducted them for 10 years, and after that time, when their music director, who was Czech, retired, they came to me and said, we'd like you to be our, our next music director because this is the the direction that they want to live in. This is the lane that they want to live in. So it, it is a great time.
0: Well, I guess uh, a kind of open forum scramble is just to simply... Can you put us at ease about what the hell is going to happen to music going forward? So this is being recorded uh, when we thought the pandemic was completely licked, and there's a variant, and we're wondering whether we can proceed with live performances. But you know, this is short-term stuff. Yeah, music has lasted far outlasted yeah, we all these things. But
1: we will above and beyond the above and beyond the vaccination. But I don't
0: sure. even have any leading questions. But I just with I, if if you're willing to unpack anything that's on your mind these days. Did you listen to a lot of music the past year? Did you find that you listened to more music or less? It feels like one of those corporate surveys they send out via yeah, email right. after more you go to music a concert. Or less.
1: Well, music is my only salvation, you know. Um, I, I was only worried that it was taken away from me. When you spend your whole life trying to achieve something and understand it, and then to present it, my job as a conductor is a unifier, is as, as the living storyteller for the dead composer, or even the living one that can't that needs a hand, and when, that, when your whole being gets stripped away
0: from you, when you can no longer perform, um, and you, it's, it's mind-boggling. What does music mean for us anymore? Why, why do we even turn to it?
1: Well, there's a difference between electronic music and live music, and this is, this is the, the paradox, is that live music, and I, I do believe there's a difference between real airwaves being moved. There is a collective consciousness when you're sitting in a room with a lot of other people and let's say the orchestra is playing and I know I'm standing in front of it. I can feel a united energy. You can't see it. It's a nice question of just bows moving up and down together. There is a collective energy and music is unique. It's not like painting or film in that you can't see it. We're moving airwaves. It's something very metaphysical, right? What is it? And it always is touching our ears and sort of our bodies are absorbing it you know breathing it in and how can it be so touching how can it move your soul move your mind move your move your being and it's just a piece of music being read being 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 done being realized by this collective energy and that cannot be replicated by any electronic medium so i missed it i missed not standing there doing that i missed not having the audience i can feel an audience behind me collectively breathing in sometimes more of a unison, sometimes not in unison, depending on the performance, depending on other distractions. But when you're in an opera house and that soprano is singing Butterfly and she's singing Morta, Marta, and she's spitting this, this thing out and the orchestra B minor is coming up from underneath and it's like this, this prime ordeal sort of thing that comes, comes up and, and her guts are being spilled on the stage. And the audience is looking at it because you got costumes, you got makeup, you've got you've got the whole thing. It is incredibly powerful. It's impossible It is the music. So to unite that, and, and during the pandemic, when you think you're going to lose that, and I wrote this lament, this conductor's lament, and the idea that I would never see or hear Beethoven nine, or go to a Broadway theater, or see hear chamber music, or or, or a, a symphony do whatever that. To me, was I've spent my whole life trying to make that happen, or facilitating it, or writing it, and to be considered for a short period of time or a year irrelevant. You become irrelevant because live music became irrelevant. We were subjugated to a pile of virtual things that, you know, yeah, we tried our best, but it was horrible.
0: Yo-Yo Ma on an iPhone.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's horrible. I got so tired of it in five seconds. Yes, it could be heartwarming that somebody's doing it from their house or their backyard or whatever, where you get members of the Philharmonic and everybody phones their thing in and somebody electronically lines it up. But the fact is the Philharmonic should have still been paid for that year. And the Met wasn't paid for the year. And those guys were out of business and they were selling their houses. But the guys at the Met were still getting paid, but not the orchestra. And it was breaking my heart, and Leonard Bernstein would not have allowed that to happen. And the guys at the Met, my guys, were not being paid. And they had to sell their houses or their apartments in New York. So they are the best in the world. The Metropolitan Opera Orchestra is the best opera house in the world, best orchestra in the world. And they found themselves being tossed to the curb, kicked to the curb, considered irrelevant. That thing that you've worked for, that talent that you have, and their music director is nowhere to be had either, by the way. So they were left. Philharmonic, left in the garden. Was their music director nowhere to be found? No. In the best city in the world, you had these two fantastic organizations being considered irrelevant. That's heartbreaking. For what? For a bunch of virtual, you know, little podcast assent. Yeah, the, the, the pop guys can, su- can succeed better because they're basically living in electronic medium, and then they perform live to make a lot of money. But the classical art, no, 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 there's nothing like a symphony. You know, and I had with my Czech guys just last, you know, a couple of months ago, we were able to do, after a year, it was July 6th, actually, no, June 6th, we were able to do Beethoven 5 live. It was the first time in a year we were able to perform in public in the, Town Square, it was for Arte TV Live, where nine different orchestras in Europe did the nine Beethoven symphonies. We drew number five. I went out and hammered that out from, mel- from memory, and we delivered that with a joy that's unimaginable, because we were finally together, no masks, no social distancing, outside, people out there in the piazza, and I'm conducting, having a ball. I- I can't, it was like finding an oasis. You know, It was like drinking some water after, not drinking for a year. But I think that the danger that the classical business is in, we've arrived at, is people had a taste for that. So why leave the house? We're already having problems because of, so, not because of, solely because of diversity issues, but it, it's become more important than the music itself. The story in the New York Times all the time, you can go to any day and find five articles about diversity and maybe find one article about anything artistic. It's just just what it is. Yeah, I want it. I want those goals for everybody. But we're still have we still talking about the music. Are we going to talk about the music? Every new thing that gets commissioned has to prove that it's somehow diverse in its conception. You're not talking about art anymore. You're, you're talking about arts and crafts at that point. And we're not. We're talking about masterpieces. You want to create masterpieces? Just hire good people. Just, just hire them. And, and take the morons... And, and get them out of our lives.
0: Well, I mean, certainly we've had a mass, a world global pandemic reshuffling where everybody needs to go back. And so there is an interesting reset button that happened that actually benefits not only these diversity causes too, because a lot of barriers to entry got blown up, but also um, it, just, it, it was a gigantic reset button. And I think it, it does feel optimistic that there's no time to worry about
1: um i just hope that the audience has come back i hope that the 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 story isn't only the diversity element but that the story eventually becomes about how good it was it reminds it it
0: reminds me of the restaurants even in this east village neighborhood where i've been starting to notice that they say sorry we had to close today because we can't get enough help right right so the menace in the world right now pivoted to we just need audiences to come back. That's right. We need musicians to be able to afford to come back. They need to get paid properly. That's right. And the other concerns were valid concerns, right? But it sort of isn't. They'll the big, always be valid concerns. But it's but it simply isn't the big issue right now. The Good. big issue right now is getting the audiences back.
1: And when you get them back, make sure they come back after that. Yeah. Because even if they come back out of some sort of duty bound curiosity, you know, oh, I'm coming back to the theater,
0: or make- or, a, or a big or a big concert in Central Park that just you know, was shut down by lightning.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, they come back, but you got to make sure that they come back because the stuff is so good that they're going to come back again a second and third and a fourth time. Mm-hmm. So do a good commission. Do a good contemporary work. Crank out your Beethoven nine and blow people's heads off with, with the majesty of that sort of thing. And yeah, they're going to want Bohem and they're going to want Traviata and they're going to want some of the hits. And yeah, it might not be the politically most correct, most piece of art, but you know, things evolve.
0: What's scary, though, is that after the pandemic, if it's going to be more of a media-delivered artistic medium, mm-hmm. music, we've also noticed how such an ad-driven medium is actually, ironically, in the full-blown capitalist sense, it's yeah. more profitable to signal those virtues. Yeah, And so you could see um, no end in sight. <laughs>
1: Oh, I hope. I I hope that we get, I hope that they get their act together. I'm just afraid that.
0: And I I wish that we had another voice at the table because it's just two people's perspective here that needs, you know, a a good fight, you know, but... I, I see, you, you are the consummate New Yorker. <laughs> I'm a New Yorker.
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm a New Yorker.
0: And and, and I, I think no one should ever apologize for simply saying it like they see it. And then you're you're watching the world change, you know, but you're also been a change agent yourself. So oh I, my God. Yeah.
1: I, I just want justice for everybody. Yeah, yeah. And justice.
0: And, and and like you said, music is innocent. I think it's a great note to end on. Music, and, it,
1: music yeah. is innocent. Let it sing. Let it move people's hearts, minds, and souls. Because that is the only thing, it seems like only music and sports can do that internationally. Mm-hmm. It's the one thing, sports obviously, you get the Olympics and everybody's on the same playing field and the winner is the fastest or the whatever the hell it is. And you do that. Music was is so international, I've conducted Japanese orchestras where I didn't speak one word of Japanese and we knew each other. Korean orchestras, we, you know, maybe there's a few guys in the orchestra, you know, a few gals that spoke some English because they studied, you know, in the States and then they went back. Didn't make a difference. In fact, I did American in Paris with them. If you want to talk about trying to get people understand a New York sense of rhythm, it was ecstatically fun. You know what I mean? We were all having a great time. So, and I've conducted orchestra in South America. I didn't, couldn't speak to them either. Whatever it is, we're, we're all on the same page when we're surrounded and elevated by the art form. And then everything else disappears. But unfortunately, only the people who do it know that. The other people are are politicians or writers that are commenting about social change. But those of us who are in it are very conscious of the fact that when we're all in it, we know we're all the same.
0: We know it. But as print media disappears and blogs are the only thing left, they're terrified. Yeah. They're losing their power critics and so on. And so there's a part of you that also ought to maybe just sort of like giggle. <laughs> uh, yeah, I Cause, giggle. Cause again, but to be sure, audiences are the ones that matter and they will always be the ones to listen to. The final. Yeah. The I'll final sure. judge and jury. It, it will be the
1: audience. <laughs> well, I just hope we get them back in. I I just hope we get them in to... Um, They'll come. To exalt by the beauty of great art.
0: They'll come, especially if you're conducting. And thanks for being with us today.
1: My pleasure, Paul. Thank you so much.